Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and it is my honor and pleasure tonight to welcome our very special guest, Julian Richings. Julian, thank you so much for being here, and how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, and it's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to meet you. I have been watching you on the screen for God knows how many years, and <laughs> to actually get to meet and talk to you, uh, it's just a it's a thrill. It's an honor. So let's go ahead and get started. We have a ton of questions for you. Uh, these first set of questions revolve around your time on Supernatural, which spanned over five years, but very limited episodes here and there. I got to ask you, whenever you came back to do an episode on Supernatural, did everybody react like, hey, Julian is back? How was the reaction whenever you would pop up on that set? It was very positive. I mean, it, the the whole character was shaped beautifully. And I think it really hit its stride even in the first introductory episode mm-hmm. when in the pizza parlor. So by the time that the writers started to bring death back, um, he was already established and they started to have fun and noodle around the edges with little moments here and there. So it was it was a fun time for all of us. I, I always enjoyed it. And uh, I really got the feeling that everybody else was on board, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how do you prepare to bring to life the human embodiment of death? <laughs> how, how do you do that as an actor? Well, yeah. Same with any role that you do. You take your clues from the script. Um, In this case, that script, that first long episode in the pizza parlor with Jensen uh, is so well written um, that you just have to kind of look at it and go, okay, so what what needs to be done here? There's, um, There's a sense of a guy who is the most powerful person going, as we've established in the intro, that amazing intro with the Gen Titus music. So the beauty of that is that I don't have to try too hard. I don't have to walk in and go, I'm really tough and I rule the world, so you better watch yourself. It's like it's been established. So the lighter and the more deft the touch, the more intimidating it is. So there's there's the first thing. And then then beyond that, there was in the scene, there was such a, a human touch, a lovely... Um, a delicious sort of mischief and mm-hmm. an irony and a toying with um, J- Jensen um, and, and the the idea that there was a back and forth, almost like an uncle and his naughty little nephew. Yeah, you know. So yeah. there were all those elements to play, and I just played those elements rather than the idea that I'm the Grim Reaper and yeah. I've come to get you. And in, and thanks to to Jensen being such a good actor he really played up the fear yes. and the intimidation. I didn't have to kind of muscle my way through it. So right away, we had a really good dynamic scene between two actors that was really interesting. It went beyond just, this is a, a grim reaper with a potential victim. It was much more than that. So, exactly. so again, you know, to answer your question in short, I just took my clue, clues from the script and allowed the other actor to help me. Well, that sort of goes right into my next question, because uh, the demeanor of how you portray death was very calm. Uh, Did you, I know you just said it was in the script, but did you add any of your own elements besides what was in the script to making him very calm, doesn't have to pump his chest up to say, I'm the almighty death? Yeah, I I think I just draw on what 
comes naturally. And um, for me, I grew up in the UK in the 60s, and I used to watch lots of Hammer Horror movies. Wow. Uh, you know, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, you know, all those with very elegant elder gentlemen that were the embodiment of evil. But they ne again, they never tried too hard. They were actually very aristocratic and elegant within their scheming uh, selves. So, so it wasn't conscious, but inevitably I'm going to bring to the table what I'm used to and what I enjoy, you know? So I think I drew on those influences. And Christopher Lee, that's a perfect uh, parallel right there, Mr. Dracula, but probably my favorite Dracula, uh, just the calmness of him. So I could definitely see uh, where you were going with that. Now, did you have to audition for death or did you get a call? Hey, we have this part and we think you'd be perfect for it. Well, around six months before I shot, I auditioned. I, I put myself on tape. I, I live in Toronto mainly. The show shoots in Vancouver. So there's no way you can do an audition in person. You put yourself on tape. Yeah. Um, my agent said, well, you, you got an audition for this show called Supernatural, which to be honest with you, I wasn't really, I'd heard of, but I wasn't that well, you know, familiar with. Anyway, I, I read this uh, interesting kind of monologue, and it was a monologue of a guy, uh, one of the four horsemen, but it was pestilence. Ah. And I put myself on tape, and I sent it away, and I forgot all about it. And then um, six months later, I my agent said, yeah, you got that job. Which job? You know, the <laughs> supernatural one. Oh, pestilence. No, you're not playing pestilence. You're playing death. So, so it seems that what happened was that I think as they were trying to figure out the four horsemen, the, the, the writers had already established one storyline and had got that and then were sending it out to as many actors as possible and seeing what came back. And from that one script, they were kind of mixing and matching and saying, that guy would be good for pestilence, that guy would be good for death, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I think that was the process. And um, you were the my, perfect pick. You, know, you were the perfect yeah. pick for death. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm very grateful. I, I, it certainly um, had a huge impact on people. I mean, I, I still, like, I can't go down the street without people generally either. Um, offering me pizza or um, running or going, you know, like death, my God, it's death. Oh. Well, so, yeah. Let me give you an example. Uh, the other day, my daughter, who's also an editor of mine, we were going through our website and I already had your picture up as an upcoming guest. So we go to the upcoming guest list. She sees your picture. She's like, I know him. Yeah. <laughs> She's a big Supernatural yeah. fan. Now, Supernatural was a hugely successful show. That's an understatement. It lasted like yeah. 15 seasons. 15 seasons. 15 yeah. seasons. What do you think was the secret to its success? What would you attribute it to? I think uh, Jensen and Jared, first of yeah. all, the two boys. I mean, they, you know, they grew up on our TV screens in front yeah. of us over 15 years. They're both really good actors and they're both really generous human beings. And I think around them was enough substance to build not just an interesting show, but an entire arc. And um, between them, their dynamic is also fun. They're relaxed. They're confident about who they are and with each other, with other people. And so, um, 
it just grew and grew and grew. And I think people began to get them and understand the spark that they created and, mm -hmm. and enjoy it. And then there's that thing where it kind of teases, it kind of titillates and scares us. But there's um, there's a moral universe in there that people like to explore yeah. and feel um, they're in safe hands. They're, they're they're going on a slightly dangerous journey with people they really trust. Yes, and I think that's uh, a really good formula, and it's worked very well. It worked very well. Uh, moving on from Supernatural, in 2020, you were in the film called Anything for Jackson, where you were like a Satanist. Who did a reverse exorcism? Yeah. All right. What was that? And when you well, <laughs> when you read the script, what were your initial thoughts about you doing a reverse exorcism? Well, that was the 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 exorcism itself was just part of the premise of the movie. I think the biggest thing that appealed to me was the characterization of the two leads. Yeah. So Henry and Audrey are an elder couple. Uh, Henry is a doctor. Um, they're both in their mid-60s. They have a grandchild that they've lost. They're grieving. Uh, we, I think we all understand mm -hmm. loss and grief and vulnerability. And we also root for uh, quaint older people that are clearly devoted to each other. So there's something in there. But what's so great about the script is that these two people um, go on a journey together that is, and, and they encourage each other to do things that are completely uh, wrong. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, you know they're out of their depth. Yes. And uh, in many ways, Henry, my character, enables his wife, Audrey, uh, in order to um, make her feel less upset. And, and the, the choices that he makes in order to do that are appalling. And I think, again, that's that's something on a generational level that we recognize that uh, mm -hmm. the older generation makes a lot of very, very bad choices, yeah. often in, 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 with the best intentions yeah. in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's something generational about the movie that really works for this present time, for our idea of the environment, uh, our, our political ideals. You know, there is a sense that a lot of the younger generation has, have have been uh, sold down the river a little bit. And so there, there's there's a bit of that. Absolutely. And uh, we're just going to be, we have so much, uh, I want to talk about so many of your projects. So excuse me if I jump from movie to movie to movie. No problem. Next on the list is in 2003, you were in the very first wrong turn as Three Fingers. Yeah. Now, it looked like you had a lot of fun doing that role. Was sure it fun did. chasing around people? I mean, <laughs> describe what that was like. It was great. I love working with special effects artists. I love my. I I grew up in a family. I'm one of three boys. Uh, both my brothers are technically very gifted. Uh, my older brother's a set designer. My younger brother's a lighting designer. I get where designers come from. I get where an actor fits into design. And I love the horror genre because actually the actor in many ways is a moving vehicle for design. Yeah. Horror movies, um, you know, the actors themselves sort of carry the story, but they're, they're also carrying high concepts. Yeah. 
The character of Three Finger was one of Stan Winston's creatures. Mm -hmm. Stan Winston, the great special mm -hmm. effects makeup artist, oh, yeah. uh, came up with these three characters, these uh, cannibal hillbillies. Um, and for me, the part of the joy of it was actually spending four hours in a chair uh, working with an artist who was working with my body and my face and creating a, a mask that I could I could use and enhance and uh, you know would, would would introduce little things that felt right and and it felt like a very organic process yeah so I, I it was very cool for me to sit there kind of uh, listening to special effects guy talk not just actor talk about you know how's my hair what's what what you know do, um, am i going gray what's going on here uh, the kind of actor vanity it's more about um the effects makeup what does it look like what's what's the result what's the rhythm of the scene how can we light this in such a way that we get the maximum impact what can we do? So special effects are working with lighting, are working with um, production design uh, in order to to maximize things. So it's it's a really um, very relaxed, very focused set actually, and there are, there's less drama and trauma on a horror film yeah. often yeah. than on a romantic comedy. Yeah. Now. Uh having throughout your career worked with practical effects as opposed yeah. to CGI there's yeah. a big debate going on especially within the horror community uh fans and insiders there are a lot of fans who prefer the practical effects now I've heard the story from actors uh, when it comes to CGI modern CGI it's actually a lot tougher because you don't have something to physically interact with right. so as an actor yourself uh do you have a deep respect? Uh, I think you do from what you just said, from the practical effects and the work that goes in, along with the lighting and everything else, as opposed yeah. to CGI. What are your yeah. feelings on CGI in today's modern technology? It's a technological advancement, and it's brought us lots of opportunity. Um, and, and um, you know, low-budget films are able to capitalize on, on, on CGI, um, on, you know, on iPhones, on, on the kind of an enabling of um, technology. Uh, it means you don't have to have crews of 50, 60, yeah. 70 people. Uh, so so there, there, there are very good aspects to technological advances. But yes, I mean, I grew up in the old school hands-on DIY special effects. There's a sort of a glory about being inventive and jerry-rigging stunts, yeah. jerry-rigging car crashes, doing stuff that you certainly miss. Uh, for instance, I've been squibbed many hundreds of times by a squib. You, you yeah. obviously yeah. know what I mean, where you have an electrical charge where there's a little blood bag that pops out when you're yep. shot, you know. Uh, so th there's a real visceral hit when you are shot and there is something for you as an actor to take as a momentum and it gives you a, a, an adrenaline rush, you know, and it gives everybody an adrenaline rush to know that there's an actor live and that there's an element of danger about what we're doing and yeah. there's a respect mutual for everybody. Um, with CGI, there's a, it's, it does feel like a bit of a cheat when you're on, on camera and somebody says, well, just put your head back, do this and then we'll do the rest. We'll do you the know, rest, yeah. That you feel like you're cheating, but hey, if it works in the context of what the filmmaker has in mind, 
That's fine. That's yeah. fine. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, but but certainly I, I would not like to lose the old ways, lose the respect for those practices. And the craft itself, uh, yeah. like the Winstons and the Bakers and the Savinis that have crafted this and made it so great. Uh, at which point in your life uh, do you remember be, like becoming a big horror fan? Or, or was it earlier in your career? Was it growing up? Uh, where did you find your love for horror? Well, as I said earlier, I, I grew up in, in Britain uh, in the 60s, so Hammer Horror was kind of the alternate thing that you would watch. You know, you would hang out with your buddies and you, you, would, um, you, you would watch kind of gory, slightly sexualized vampire movies. Yeah. And that would be the subculture um, that was a bit gritty, a bit grainy, but had an imaginative license and world to it. Um, so I, I've always felt attracted to that crowd. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I guess, though, that there's not one form of horror movie that I'm attracted to. I, the, the very first movie that made a huge impression on me was Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton. Okay. Uh, directed way back in the 50s, black and white. It's, it's sort of an expressionist film. It's the one with Robert Mitchum with love and hate tattooed yeah. on his knuckles, you know, and, and Shelley Winters yes. dying. And it's, it's an extraordinary terrifying movie about a fake preacher chasing children down a riverbank. Um, and I realized that, you know, terror in the movies can be something that is incredibly cathartic and, uh, and fun. It's a fun ride. It's like it's stepping on a, a roller coaster, you know, yeah. and you go on it and at the end you're exhausted and, Oh, you know, you, you actually hardly remember it because you're so in it moment by moment by moment on the edge of your seat. Uh, so that was kind of my inspiration. And I, I like movies. You know, I, I don't have a preference. I don't like gore fests and splatter or, or uh, creeping psychological dramas. I, I kind of, I like all the elements. Mm -hmm. For me personally, uh yeah, the gore and the blood. It's fun. But for me, character building, storytelling, uh, something that actually scares you and leaves an impact with you, that to me is the recipe of what makes a good horror film. And I think that the, the, the thing that interests me too, I, I, I agree with you, um, horror films generally look at society going wrong. Yeah. It, it, it pokes away at our fears and, and our insecurities rather than our aspirations and our need to succeed. Mm -hmm. It's actually, oh, my God, what if this went wrong? What if we took a wrong turn? What if this fell down? What if there, that guy over there turned out to be a menacing presence? You yeah. know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I think that it's the undercurrents of society that are represented or and and our psychological fears and that's that's always potent and it's always interesting yes i absolutely agree now uh, in a film that of yours that was released in 2020 the hall uh mirrors sort of like the covid days that we've been living in for over a year now uh what were your impressions i assume uh, well 
I assume the film was shot well before COVID yeah. came, and then yeah. this movie came out, which sort of mirrored a little bit the real life events of this horrible pandemic. What are your thoughts yeah. about that? What drew me to it was that yes, it was a what if there was an outbreak. It was our our societal fear of zombies yeah. of being taken over by the other or, or losing control of ourselves, of our societal order. But it examined it in such a way that it looked at it through the mirror of a, a personal relationship that was going wrong yeah. with a, a, a f husband and wife and their daughter. And the, the, um, the trauma between the two of them was kind of reflected in the bigger world in the corridors of the hotel. So there was a there was a lot going on there. There was a lot of echoes. It wasn't just a, hey, we're going to do uh, zombies crawling up the hotel hallway. It was there was there's a lot in there. There's a, and and I feel that um, sure enough, uh, there was something very prophetic about mm -hmm. the, the film. I mean, they obviously anticipated. Uh, the idea of, of a big uh, pandemic, uh, but it was it's a pandemic of isolation and uh, not communicating yeah. as much as it is a pandemic of death and fear. Which is what we have been experiencing in real life over the, the last year plus, you know? So that's why I wanted to bring that up. Now, I got to get to Hannibal, okay? I love right. The show Hannibal. You were in a single episode, but it was a very memorable episode where you played the caged man. Yeah. Very extensive. They made you look like uh, you literally walked out of the jungle into society. Uh, yeah. What was it, first of all, working on Hannibal uh, with Hugh Dancy, Mads, uh, being on that set? And the second part is... The extent, how extensive of work and how long did it take to make you look the way they did for that one episode? Um, it was pretty extensive. I mean, the, I had hair mm -hmm. extensions. I had a fake beard. Um, I, I'm the kind of guy that if you ask me to grow a beard, I, I'll need advance warning of about nine to 10 months. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not the most hirsute guy. So, so you know, there, there was lots of prep. But that preparation often takes place before the actual day of shooting. You know, that was all in the creation of wigs and, and hair pieces. Um, the actual makeup wasn't that extensive. It was just dirtying me up, basically, yeah. and applying this. And, and creating a physical person who felt, who, who was wretched, who, who had been abused and didn't feel like he belonged to society was an outsider mm -hmm. was was from as you say from a different place you know from a different like almost a neanderthal place um but was and was vulnerable that to me is the fun part of it that's something that i look to with my physicality i have a, a physical training and um all of my characters have a physical base they don't just I don't just speak lines. I kind of ground myself in a, in a, in in um, a place, a walk, uh, uh, a movement pattern, like three finger, yeah. you know, from from wrong turn. So that was a fun thing to kind of inhabit this guy that was not used to, what well, that was used to a 
living in a cage. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a horrible idea, but for an actor, a very stimulating um, idea to try and convey. Absolutely. Now, Hannibal is uh, was an amazing show. Definitely a dark show. Yeah. Uh, out of all the movies and TV shows you've done, personally, which one do you think uh, had the darkest overtone? I guess is the best way to put it that you've appeared in. Hannibal yeah. was extremely dark, as opposed yeah. to Supernatural. Supernatural, even though it dealt around yeah. very dark issues. It was not in the same class as Hannibal, which was in a, a class of its own, um, yeah. which made it great. What would you say was the darkest script that you had to work on? Hmm. I think, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. There's here. a long list. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's a surprising answer. Um, it, it, it's a, a completely different form. It's also one of the funniest shows that I've ever done. You see, I think that you can have darkness and light together, and I think that that's what makes things very, very interesting, mm -hmm. uh, which is why sometimes, you know, like with Hitchcock, yeah. suspense and horror comes from a lot of humor too. Yes. So one of the, the funniest and, and most beautiful shows that I, I've been a part of is a show called Patriot on Amazon. Yes. Um, it's it's very different. I mean, it is not within the horror genre at all. It's mm -hmm. it's about CIA. It's about fathers and sons. It's a it's it's all kinds of things. Um, but there is a, a there is a humanity, but there's also a darkness and a realization uh, that sometimes we get things terribly terribly wrong, uh, both as parents yeah. and both as people with our loyalties and our missions and, and, and our misplaced sense of patriotism. And so there was a, a darkness there that I think we shot it, I guess, five years ago. Um, there was that reflected a kind of a political unrest and agitation mm -hmm. and, and um, upset turmoil in the world. Yeah. Um, that that is very very dark. So it's not uh, probably not an answer that you're expecting. No, it's no. not like you know. It's not the most kind of obvious example. But I think within the humor and the life and the beauty, yeah. there's also a lot of pain and, and darkness. I could totally see that. Now, uh, you were you had a small role in Urban Legend. Uh, yeah. And uh did you take that role uh because you wanted to work with like robert england or did you love uh the script it was a it was a great movie it was very successful yeah you played the janitor yeah uh, i played the red herring the I played the, <laughs> which is kind of a fun thing and, and and i've done it a few times where you go that guy he doesn't look right he's <laughs> creepy he's He's sending me vibes that I'm going, it's him. It's He's the bad guy. Watch out for him. And in fact, as we find out, yeah. spoiler alert, but, it, it, you know, it's somebody else. But that I find that responsibility fun. Yeah, I find that, um, you know, as, as an actor, my job is to come and enhance the story in one way or another to provide uh, a mood or a color or something that, will either help the story arc or complement the story arc or come in at a particular energy to our lead characters. 
And sometimes it requires a kind of a sleight of hand. And if as an actor you're playing the sleight of hand, you're, you're taking people's uh, attention into a, an opposite direction, it's, it's a fun thing to do. And, and it, it's not only horror movies, it can be Westerns, it can be uh, spy thrillers, you know, it, it can be all sorts of things. I, I think that's um, a, a basic to storytelling that I actually quite enjoy. I feel like I'm taking people down the wrong path. That's great. That's, that's what movies are all about. Uh, yeah. Now, you've gone to work with many great directors throughout your career. Uh, included in that list is uh, Guillermo del Toro and George Romero. Um, yeah. The movies were Mimic and Survival of the Dead, respectively. What stands out, let's say, with working with Romero? Uh, is there anything that stands out with working with those two particular directors? Uh, both of them, their humanity and their um, relaxed nature. Um, you know, you would never think that when you see their films, you would think that they were like, you know, really uh, crisp, um, tense affairs, yeah. uh, relying on, you know, moments happening correctly. In fact, both of them were really, really uh, easygoing, uh, really kind which is an interesting quality for somebody that is creating, you know, often a lot of shock. Um, but, you know, it goes back to what I was saying. I think that um, horror films are often places that are actually quite comfortable. And the horror genre is in a weird way comforting. It is. It, it, it's, it actually helps us look at things in a slightly different way. So anyway, so to get to George, George Romero, I worked on Survival of the Dead, which was one of his last films. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he, he would readily say that it wasn't one of his greatest films, um, not from his most creative period. Yeah. But it had some moments of pure George that were just magnificent. And there were, there were moments working with him where you realized that he knew exactly what he needed. There was one point where we burst into a room um, through a door. The, the scene started with a close-up of a boot kicking a door down, and then, then the gang rushed through the door and rush in upstairs to see whether there are some zombie children chained to yeah. a bed upstairs. So we started shooting in the afternoon, and, and producers were getting a little uptight. Things were going slowly. The door didn't work. We couldn't get it jimmied in such a way that it would fall correctly. There were a few attempts, didn't work, didn't work again. And the carpenters came in, tried to do something. Then somebody hurt themselves and went on and on. And people were running around. George, all the while, is just sitting there, completely relaxed. And then, you know, people, the volume on set is going up and up. You know, you can feel it rising. And George sits there and goes, you know what, guys? We don't really need that door. Let's forget the door, shall we? This scene's not about the door. Completely calm, you know. And everybody turns to him and goes, really? Yeah. The scene's not about the door. The scene's about when we get up the stairs. So why don't we just hear the door crash off camera? And everybody goes, oh, wow. You know, so it takes that confidence and that calm and that assurance to, to be able to sort of say, yeah, I, I know what this is about i and, and george like a lot of really good uh, directors shoots to edit to uh you know knows that this scene is going to cut to the next scene is going to cut to the next scene you can see it in his head 
he doesn't have to waste time on the wrong avenues. Oh, that is, I love hearing stories like that. And was this the only time that you got to work with George Romero? Yes, it was. Yeah. Do you consider um, it an honor that before his passing, you got to work with? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we all did. We all, I mean, that's the reason we all, all participated in the film. And also what was amazing was that people came from all over the world as zombies with oh, their yeah. own zombie gear and, uh, you know, would come and uh, stay in hotels and knew, knew that George was filming and would arrive on set to be included in the movie. And there was that just worldwide respect and, and desire to be a part of anything that George did. Oh. And he just, um, you know, he, he, he was, he was charmed and flattered, but in a, in a very, uh, very, very uh, engaging way, very modest, and very, he was always surprised at how much people passionately uh, admired his work. Oh, he sounds like a wonderful man. Uh, he yeah. was a wonderful man. Uh, let's go back now to some earlier days. You trained in drama, theater, yeah. toured North America. What are yeah. some of your fondest memories when you were doing theater? Ooh, I, I've got many, and, and I still do. I, I am a theater actor uh, by training, by experience. I've toured the world with theater. That's the reason I, I originally toured around England and Scotland and then came uh, to, to Europe and then came to North America. Um, I think it's... It, Working with a small group of people on a one show for a sustained period of time really allows you to investigate the show that you're, the story that you're telling, yeah. but also you get to know intimately everybody else within it and all the component pieces. And I think it teaches you humility as an actor where you go, okay, so telling this story, fun can be had when you're not on stage, when you're anticipating the moment that's coming three pages down the road. Um, you, you, you just enjoy the rhythm and you enjoy uh, the ability sometimes not to be the focus of attention, but to be the support, to be uh, the guy that comes in and makes somebody laugh and then walks off stage. There's a sort of a sense of an ebb and flow of your responsibility as an actor, um, but you never switch off. like. When the show is running, if you're off stage, you're, you're behind the curtains, mm -hmm. listening, ready, and part of it, and then 100% ready to go into it. And, and I think you can always tell theater actors when they're doing film, because they, there's a sort of um, a, an energy and participation that theater actors have. Uh, not, it's not better, it's not worse, but it's got a kind of... Um, uh, an intensity and, yeah. and uh, an all-purposeness all about it. Absolutely. Now, can you remember how the transition went from you going from theater into motion pictures? How did that come about? Did you want to, or were you initially at the start of your career, you would have been happy just being a stage actor? I, I, I would have been happy being a stage actor, but um, I so I was... Uh, married with kids, a pretty successful stage actor. I toured internationally, set up 
um, my, my uh, roots in Toronto, in Canada, which was the center of theater, film, television, commercials, all kinds of things. And I really enjoyed it for that. But I was primarily a theater actor. And I realized that I could be involved in a number of different productions, different styles with different people. But I also knew that it doesn't pay the rent. I mean, you know, and as you start to have kids, you do a five week run in, in a 200 seat theater and uh, you get a percentage of the box office yeah. and, uh, you know, it doesn't go very far. Yeah. So what inevitably happened was I started to do commercials that were being shot. Uh, Toronto was a, a big center for commercial shooting. And so I would advertise a product during the day and it, it would subsidize, you know, and I would go to the theater and do more. And then because of the way I look, I tended to play the quirky guy, the jokey guy, the the gag or the, the guy that falls over and, and yeah. hits his head, you know. So I, I started to enjoy it and I started to learn how sets worked, how to play to the camera. Uh, and then I got a few roles in uh, um, episodic TV shows, you know, guest of the week and stuff. So it evolved. And, and I had to relearn too, um, just uh, focusing on the lens, on the camera, on the size of like uh, of of the the emotion that I'm expressing, um, so it was a it was a gradual process. But after about ten years, I realized that I'd flip flopped, and I was doing probably eighty percent film and television and twenty percent theater. And now it's got to the point where I'm doing almost entirely film and television. I do the occasional theater show. But the reason I don't do theater, the, the only reason is scheduling. It's yeah. just that theater operates on a, an entirely different level in that you have to book six months, sometimes a year in advance to yeah. a play. And that play is going to tie you up for mm -hmm. three months. And you know when there's a lot of exciting film and television projects coming up, you know it's very hard to commit to that without at the last minute saying, sorry, guys, I've got another gig. You know, yeah. I, I don't like doing that. So so, um, so I miss it. I, I don't do theater so much, but it's very much a part of the way I approach character, even on film and TV, even though I've adjusted and adapted to the camera, I think my process is quite theatrical. Now, I've had a lot of guests tell me that have come from a theater background and they go into motion pictures, television, that they have to learn how to interact with the camera. So yeah. as an actor, uh, what would you say is the biggest difference performing for a camera as opposed to a live audience? What is like, if you were giving advice to somebody who's up and coming, who's in theater right now and is about to do motion picture, what would be the one thing you would tell them? Uh, for me, it's allowing the camera to find you and to discover you. In theater, that's, there's a need to reach out and grab, you know, grab yeah. the last uh, row of seats in, in the theater uh, to, to seize people's interest. The opposite is required in, in film. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say that you have to make any different choices or be any less truthful in one medium or the other. It's just that you have to find a way of balancing it and dis making those discoveries 
So one discovery is on the front foot and the other discovery is more sort of keeping it to yourself and knowing where that viewer is watching you from, the viewer being the camera. Yeah. Now, you were also in uh, the very high-budget film Man of Steel. Yeah. Uh, you know, being on a movie like that, it was Warner Brothers, right? It was a yeah. Warner Yeah. Yeah. With such a huge budget, uh, explain to us as viewers and fans, what's it like to walk onto a set with such a, a big, enormous budget as opposed to something with a modest budget? Well, I, it is something that I do a lot. Um, and, and, I mean, it is extraordinary uh, and, and it's exhilarating. Um, when I, I shot Man of Steel, it was... Um, the first time I'd ever gone onto a set and everybody handed their cell phones in, you know, there was this, an aura of secrecy around the thing. And, uh, oh, wow, you know, it, this is so big and yet we have to be so secret about the whole thing. Now, that, that was kind of very exciting. I'd also never seen so much green screen in all my life. <laughs> I, I mean, I walked into basically a hockey arena that was green screened. You know, it was like wherever you looked. And in the foreground was some amazing set pieces and some architecture that we as actors were, were sat on. But obviously it was going to be painted in later on. And, you know, the mind boggled at how much work had gone into creating this environment in green, let alone what was going to happen in post-production mm -hmm. on top of the, the green screen. Uh, and also uh, what was incredible was acting with people with tennis balls at the top of their head, you know, and uh, like, the, all right, you have to look at the tennis ball. You don't look at the guy that's speaking because in, when they CGI it, it will be the tennis ball that's speaking because the guy is 10 foot tall. Yeah. So you look there, you know, it's, it's our reference point. And you go, all right, it's a reference point. And you just try not to look down at the guy that's actually speaking to you. There's all those sort of like technical adjustments, but, but really it's just the exhilaration of being on a big project. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting, you know, it's sort of sexy. Um, uh, looking at it from the other way though, you know, when you're on a small budget show and I've done many, uh, independent films that have shot in 15, 18 days, um, you, there's a kind of a pragmatism and a DIY sass that kicks in that actually cuts corners and, and it's not inflated and it means that um, it's, it's very pragmatic and, and, mm -hmm. and equally fun. But it's, you know, hey, it's the the grand opera you know yeah. it's 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 fun and and working with people that you know are legendary you know russell crowe like yes. hanging out with russell crowe who is a larger than life um person yes. uh, not just actor but but you know an, an incredible actor. person amazing amazing mm -hmm. and and uh, a really great guy to be around you know um but, but but he has an aura around him, right? Because we've we've created him as a sort of a superstar, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and he he carries it very well. But it's like, yeah, wow. And I, I had a similar experience. I did X Men Three as yes. well, um, which again, you know, had that sense of size and no problem. If it's a problem, we'll overcome it. You know, we've got the the resources, we've got the finances, we can do it. Um, 
But in either case, I was very fortunate because I, I did scenes with great actors. Nice. Um, uh, I, and uh, obviously um, Ian McKellen um, oh, yeah. was a, a wonderful scene partner. And um, yeah, and, and I was very fortunate in Man of Steel too. So when you go on these sets like uh, Man of Steel and X-Men, like you said, it's a big, giant green screen, green screens everywhere. And then you do your scenes, you do your work, and then it comes time to see the final product. Do you, what is your like impression when you sit down in the theater and you saw Man of Steel, the finished product or X-Men, and you remember being on that set, you remember shooting your scene and seeing all the work that the editors, the special effects people have done with the CGI. As an actor, what is like the feeling that invokes in you seeing the final product? Um, oh, it depends. Uh, you can feel very small. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in <laughs> you look at it and you know how much work you put in and everybody else around you and you realize you know, it's all about the spectacle and the, the, the sound and the fury um, and um, it, about people flying through the air and zaps of thunder and, and stuff. But it can also, it, it's a double-edged thing. It, I, I'm also aware of movie magic and I look mm -hmm. at it and I go, oh, wow, I am a sprinkle of stardust within that music movie magic. You know, I, I'm, I realized that it's gone from all those working bits that were sort of felt clunky and we were pretending with to this extravaganza and um, it's magical. Uh, magical. And, and uh, you know, is the, with the, and always the addition of sound. I think that's the thing that, which surprises me as an actor is when I see the finished product, I never have a soundtrack in my head. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. We're talking back and forth and I'm listening to what you're saying, but we're not accompanied by emotional music exactly. or, you know, sound and fury and stuff. And so that always uh, takes me by surprise and particularly in something like Man of Steel, how, grand it is and uh, you know through all the speakers in the movie theater and it's amazing to me how uh like you just said it's such a vital element to any movie or tv show but the soundtrack because it's just so subconscious and it just equates into our experience as viewers how it's just overlooked sometimes just yeah. to bring up a great uh, composer Hans Zimmerman. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, come on. I yeah, mean, some of yeah. the the stuff that he's put yeah. together has been phenomenal. Now, when you get a new script, and somebody yeah. say, "Hey, can you read this?" and you know, would you be interested? Is there a particular thing you look for in a new script that's going to lead you to auditioning or taking the role as opposed to not taking the role? No, reasons to take something or not uh, vary hugely, depends on the rest of the cast. It, the story might not be quite right, but it might feel like there's a great um, cinematographer that has a great eye and he's going to invest something in there that you want to be a part of. Or, or, or there's a topic or you feel that it could shift and change as, as we do it. it. It really, I don't have a, a, a rule book of 
aha, they don't meet this criteria, therefore I'm going to say no. And to be honest with you, sometimes it comes down to money. You know, yeah. it comes down to, hey, it's a job. And I've, I, I think that looks like a good job. And maybe it's not the best this, that or the other, but I think I'll take it. So, so there are many reasons. Um, but I, new scripts, what do I look for? Um, freshness, vitality, originality, and maybe not being perfect. I mean, and maybe that's what I'm getting at as I'm rambling here. I'm getting oh, at the yeah. fact that it doesn't have to be um, slick. And, and maybe that's sort of what I like sometimes is that within the process, those things can be either fixed or compensated for by counterpoint, counterpoint music, um, something that we discover, a spark between two characters that you didn't even know existed when you read the script, or uh, you know, a beautiful piece of um, uh, scenic design that, that suddenly becomes emotional. Yeah, I, you know, stuff like that, like um, rough diamonds for me uh, as scripts are much more interesting uh, material than something that's a tried and true formula. Yeah, like all the tropes and horror, like, you know, if they get used too much, they lose their effectiveness in a way. Yeah. Now, we're sort of seeing, starting to see the light at the end of this COVID tunnel, at least here in North America. I know other yeah. parts of the world are still being ravaged. Do you see the Hollywood landscape forever changed when COVID, you know, years from now is in our rearview mirror, hopefully, and everything is sort of back to normal. Has it been forever changed? I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, we know that the big players are getting bigger. We know that Netflix and Amazon and the, the streaming services now are, are mainly responsible for content. And COVID, you know, during COVID, we haven't been going to see new releases uh, live at the theater. I hope that that returns. The, the cinema going experience to me is, I just love it, you know. And the idea that we premiere things on, on our small screens is, is very disappointing to me. Um, I think that we have a, a, a need to go to, to the theater physically and 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 to go back to that cycle of opening weekend and, and reviews and, and and a sense of anticipation uh, and not seeing it in like 10 episode chunks but yeah. going bang you know there's that one incredible thing uh, so i'm looking forward to i i hope that that's going to return um i worry a little about um independent film um, I hope that I, I, I hope that with our technological change, that um, there are outlets, there are independent horror movies, there are markets, there are festivals where the independents can keep producing and creating. Um, people don't I, realize. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but people yeah, yeah, just don't realize how important independent films are and yeah. what they contribute to the movie industry and just how important they are. There have been so many gems that yeah. have come from uh, the independent circuit, working their way through film festivals, getting purchased, getting distributed, yeah. so many countless gems. And a lot of people who are not in, in the industry take it for granted that some of their favorite movies, you know, 
were independent films. And, and not received well at the time no. of their relief. Oh, release. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, um, I, it, it's, it's essential. And, and, and something that starts to happen is that when studios become savvy and, and, and kind of, um, I, I guess very powerful, they start to produce fake independent films. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I and do. so, so, um, that starts to be a problem where, uh, you go, wait a minute. No, that's kind of formulaic. And that's sort of, that's wearing the, the clothes of an independent film, but it actually isn't. It it's isn't. like, it's, it's primary new colors. It, it's shocking new things. It's, uh, like I, I went, I said before, rough diamonds, things yeah. that you go, what is that? I just don't get it. I don't understand it, but it's good or yeah. it's worth or it's not even good. I don't know if it's good, but it's worth watching yeah. and it's arresting. And it's not just being arresting for the sake of it. It's not just trying to shock me into watching it. It's just, but there's something about it. Yeah, it and it's that indefinable thing that is so important. And I think that's what comes from indie spirit. Exactly. It's like the movie you watch. And for me, it's you wake up the next morning and you're still thinking about it. You don't know why, yeah. but yeah. it leaves an impression with you. Yeah. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you, you have several uh, projects, uh, some completed, some in post-production, uh, yeah. Compton Manor, Stanleyville, uh, Salvation. Which uh, yeah. ones or all of them are you most excited about that is going to be coming out? Um, I, I think um, Chapelweight is an interesting film. Uh, it's a series. It's based on Stephen King's short story, Jerusalem's Lot. Okay. That's Jerusalem's Lot, not Salem's Lot, but it precedes <laughs> Salem's Lot. It's very much the same territory, the uh -huh. same same kind of worldview. Um, it's um, it, it was a short story written by by Stephen King, and it's been adapted to a ten part miniseries, uh, starring Adrian Brody uh -huh. um, and Emily Hampshire. Um, yes. Chapelweight is the name of the haunted house that he, he inherits from his relatives, and I can't tell you much more than that. But it's it's going to be a fun show. It's going to be on epics. Epics, okay. uh, which is MGM, which is now obviously with the shifting of, of the industry. I think it's now Amazon, but we'll see how that plays out. I, I tell my uh, viewers you're going to see a lot of mergers happening with the I, streaming wave. I think so. Yeah. Um, but this is also one of those really interesting products that I think could be really quite good. Um, I was lucky enough to film that during COVID um, in a in a bubble in in the maritime bubble in Canada where they were relatively unscathed by COVID mm -hmm. and and the protocols were in place to create a safe uh, film environment. So we shot this entire series and and I think it would be really good. I'm looking forward to it. I'm definitely going to watch it. <laughs> Julian, do you believe an hour has passed already? Oh, wow. No, that's that amazing. was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing all those stories. Uh, it's been an absolute honor. Any final thoughts you want to share with our audience before we say goodbye? No, thank you for listening, and uh, let's hope we all get through this soon, and I'll see you at the movies. Absolutely. Julian, thank you so much. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. It's been a fascinating talk. 
again, Julian, it's been an honor talking to you. Everybody stay safe. And until next week, stay walking. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you.